Welcome to Uninhibited, a podcast with the mission to discuss taboo, multicultural, multi-generational, and multi-layered topics that matter to women. My name is Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki. I am an Ivy League-trained OBGYN practicing medicine in rural America. I am married and raising three dynamic African-American boys. I am a mother, a career professional, a part of Generation X, and so much more. I bring to the table a true desire for social justice that informs my opinions, and my hope is that this podcast will open conversations, question beliefs, and be transformative. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Uninhibited. I'm your host, Dr. Makunda Abdul-Baki, and today we have the pleasure of talking with Annie. Annie is a survivor of inter- personal partner violence, but she's also so much more. And um, I think in the light of October being um, a time to spotlight um, domestic violence and survivors and um, just taking back control of your life, I wanted to um, lead with a strong woman who is is a survivor and doing so much more. And so I want to introduce you to Annie. Annie, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Makunda. Um, I guess I wanted to to start out with saying, um, in, in relation to domestic violence, my, my history of abuse, um, there has been physical abuse, uh, but more so, I think the more damaging aspect has been um, manipulation and psychological abuse um, from my parents and then my um, first husband who was my high school boyfriend um, and then on to my next marriage um, and I I you know think that it's important to recognize those other forms of abuse and that um, you know although you may not have the uh, long-term damaging effects that the psychological effects and the um, and the difficulty in leaving those relationships is just um, it's it's just as damaging. Um, so um, uh, about me, uh, I'm the only child of uh, older parents. Um, I don't think my parents expected to have any children. Uh, and my mother uh, let me know in no uncertain terms that I had um, kind of changed her plans in a negative way. Um, she was the more controlling and abusive parent. Uh, I could never really do anything right um, and got smacked across the face quite a bit for, um, you know, saying anything that was out of line. Um, that relationship was also characterized by a lot of social isolation. Um, I was not only a, uh, a shy child in school and, and young for my grade since I had a December birthday and started kindergarten early at age four, um, but my mother would never let me go over to anybody's house after school, so uh, I n- never developed any friendships beyond the classroom. Um, and uh, she kind of, you know, wanted to choose my friends for me, um, uh, which was a little bit strange, but uh, but that was who she was. Um, money-wise, 
I would say my upbringing and neighborhood were pretty much middle class. Um, but neither of my parents worked um, until I was in the eighth grade. My father, uh, as I mentioned, well, both parents were older when I was born. My mother was almost 42 and my father was 55. Um, he was a uh, laid off factory worker and my mother had been a secretary. They never spoke about money or paying bills or how to make ends meet. So um, I feel that, that that lack of education contributed to the um, lack of financial literacy that led me into other abusive situations. Um, but I, you know, later learned that, that they survived, uh, you know, made ends meet through, um, investments that paid dividends. And that was really the main source of income, uh, growing up. But meanwhile, um, we also kind of lived a, um, uh, sort of a depression era mentality. So both had been alive during the depression at different ages, young ages, and their families were not well to do. Um, so my mother focused a lot on, um, cutting coupons and, you know, running around and turning off lights and even went as far as she would, uh, when the washing machine would, would have runoff water in the basement, she would collect that water in the big sink and, and carry it upstairs in buckets and use it to flush the toilet, um, to save on the water bill. So I kind of grew up with this dysfunctional um, understanding of how you save and and what things are worth and um, no understanding really of how much things cost. Um, in, you in said it was school, their, mm-hmm. you said it was their desire to have you go to, to get the best education possible, to go to uh, a private like a prep school, um, how was that transition? Was it an away school or did you just go to a private school and come home at night or was it like a boarding school? So, yeah, so in public school, um, I was bullied, um, particularly in junior high, and, and that kind of fueled the um, the change for them to investigate private schools, um, wanting me to uh, have a good education, and I think my mother kind of began to see me as, you know, not just the unwanted child, but the investment in the future because I, I did well in classes. Um, I ended up at a boarding school for high school. Uh, for the first two years, I was what you would call a day student, um, so I lived at home, uh, and my father would drive me to class to and from classes, um, which was roughly. 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. because at a boarding school there's you know there's sports and then there's uh, after after school activities and there's dinner in the dining hall. So it made for a very uh, very long days the first two years freshman and sophomore year that uh, I was a day student. Um, I was still shy and and desperate for social relationships and uh, had trouble had trouble making friends had a couple of friends. Um, then, uh, because they found out about scholarship opportunities, uh, I was able to begin and and develop some level of confidence that I could handle the situation, I guess. I began, uh, boarding and living in the dorms junior year, um, which was when I also got my first boyfriend, 
um, who later became my first husband. Um, but that was a kind of a, a, a switch and a continuation of, uh, of an abusive relationship and uh, lifestyle that, you know, began and I had become adapted to in childhood. Hindsight so, being um, twenty twenty, now that you're um, past that, what what would what were you seeing in him as the sixteen seventeen year old Annie that would make you run now? That would make you say, "Oh, I should have picked up." Or, or was there anything? Yes. Um, so what I kind of took as normal teasing. Um, I think was just not very nice behavior. Um, and then there was a lot of, there was a lot of putting down that I didn't recognize as putting down um, about how his family was better. And uh, you know, his, his parents had more money and that they had real jobs and that my whole life was somehow dysfunctional, um, which, well, it was, but um it just, I think that, you know, his, his treatment of me, uh, was not, it was not kind or compassionate communication that I would, you know, hope for the kind of relationship that my children would have with their, um, with their friends. Um, mm -hmm. it wasn't filled with kind words. Um, mm -hmm. he also began pretty, pretty quickly with, with isolating me from, you know, other people. So, um, as I did develop other friendships as a boarding student, um, you know, he would put limitations on that, saying that, you know, it didn't it didn't appear proper if, you know, if I went to dinner with, with his friends or if I was sitting at a table and there were other boys at the table, that that was not okay. Um, he also uh, kind of insisted that I had to break off friendships with a couple of the people that I was very good friends with from freshman and sophomore year, um, saying that, that being friends with them would, would leave me in the category of being a, a nerd or a geek. Um, and that to be with him, I needed to be more normal. Um, you know, if I, if I wanted that type of relationship and lifestyle, um, my mother, actually both parents were very suspicious of the relationship. Um, I think mainly because, you know, along with never being able to do anything right. The relationship wasn't going to be right, no matter who it was, unless it was someone of my mother's choosing. Um, so there was, there was contention there, um, which just drove me to stay with him um, more because I felt a certain level of security um, and his parents, you know, treated me nicely and I went out to dinner with them. And um, I, I felt like that was a, I, I needed to, you know, defend my, my position against my parents, um, which was somewhat normal teenage behavior, um, but but also not. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And I think what I would want to underline for listeners is how much what we experience as children shapes the future. So being so mindful of what we're exposing our own kids to because you went, it, it wasn't any, no signal turned on for you as far as why is someone trying to pick and choose my friends? Why is someone 
telling me who to sit with and who not to sit with. It wasn't abnormal for him to do it because you'd gotten used to your mom doing it. So that level of control became normative. And, um, and so, you you know, it's just, as I said, um, it's something we need to just be careful about as, as we raise this next generation, hoping that we, you know, won't continue down the same pathways of, of abuse. So you, Finished up, and obviously you said that um, academics, uh, you you were gifted uh, an achiever, and you were accepted and um, started school at the University of Pennsylvania, which uh, we, you know, we abbreviate as UPenn or Penn, and um, that's a very prestigious Ivy League school. What was your experience like then, and did that um, break up that relationship? Because he didn't go to Penn with you. Right, right. So he went to Cornell. I went to UPenn. Um, and so the relationship was somewhat on the rocks. Uh, but um, I was also not strong enough to break it off. So there was a tension there. Um, I was excited about taking new subjects um, in in college and making new friends and having a social life. Um, and again, that's where the control on his part kicked in and, you know, telling me who I could and could not be friends with. But with the distance in between, you know, I could I could kind of, uh, you know, omit certain information um, and, and still be able to maintain a social life. However, he did, um, you know, put a lot of ultimatums on me. You know, I had to come visit on the weekends or the relationship was going to end. So uh, again, more warning signs that I should have recognized. You know, he had a he had a car from his family, and he was getting a monthly allowance. So he could have he could have driven from you know Ithaca to Philadelphia pretty easily, um, but he would make up various reasons why I should go visit him. So in addition to my work study job, I took on a, a morning job delivering newspapers in the dorms to pay for the Greyhound bus trip. Um, from Philadelphia to Ithaca, um, and, and again, you know, not getting any kind of reimbursement or, or shared expenses from him with that, uh, I think was kind of was ignorant on my part, um, but also a continuation of uh, of my childhood and lack of understanding of of money, um, and and again the the control and the ultimatums and him being in charge. Um, mm-hmm. So at the End of my sophomore year, uh, I declared my major in sociology and um, had applied to submatriculate into the social work program at UPenn, which I was accepted for. And, and sub, what submatriculation means is that you're able to start the graduate studies at the same time as finishing your undergraduate studies. So everything gets done in, a, in an overall shorter amount of time. Um, mm-hmm. so he didn't like that because it meant that I would be in Philadelphia longer, um, and, and not be able to come live with him. Um, he wanted, so he wanted me to, to stick with the, uh, standard plan and, and get finished and, and move to his location. Um, my parents didn't like it. 
because it wasn't what they expected I was going to get out of a prep school education. Um, so their impression was that, you know, sending me to a boarding school and, and, and a, um, an Ivy League university meant that I would make a lot of money. Um, yes. that, that was the interest. What I got out of the prep school education was a lot of um, weekly school or class meetings um, where we, where it was talked about how we could make the world a better place and how we could follow our our passions and dreams and um, and help other people. So that was my takeaway. Mm-hmm. And and the sociology and social work track felt like a, a natural fit because those things really spoke to my heart and who I was. Um, so. There were some tough conversation, phone conversations during those times, and um, my parents ultimately came right out and said, money is more important than happiness. Um, we're not supporting you anymore. Um, so I was on you know, partial scholarship based on their, their income, but certainly in, in no position to fund my own education, and according to financial aid rules, um, could not apply as an independent student um, while I was still under, I think the cutoff was age 24 or 26. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the summer after sophomore year, I just said, you know, fine, you know, cut me off. That's fine. Don't send me any money. Um, I will find my way and was just working that summer and, and trying to figure out how I was going to make it happen. Um uh, I also decided to take about a, a, a week off of work that summer and travel with some friends around to some Grateful Dead concerts. This was something that the boyfriend was not in favor of. Um, <laughs> you know, had firmly put his foot down against. I was absolutely not going to do this. Um, I decided I didn't care and, and went. So when I came back after that week, um, there were a lot of angry messages on my answering machine for voicemail. Um, yeah, I know you're dating answer. yourself between the grateful yeah. death and the, <laughs> the inability for him to send evil text messages through the time means right, that right. we're talking yeah. about the uh, late eighties, um, early nineties. So yeah, you, no, no text, was no that the, yeah, no, no, yeah, no ready response, no emails, no text messages. So you had to wait for the, uh, the ill uh, messages on their answering machine. So you, at this point, um, from what we'd already discussed, you found yourself um, basically abandoned by your parents because you weren't majoring in what they wanted you to major in. Um, You're not able to afford pen. Um, You also talked about a very... um, catastrophic car accident that you were in and at that point you felt the the best place for you to be was to move back um with him at Cornell um and you you moved back up well not back up but you moved up to Ithaca to rebuild yourself and 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 uh move forward with the relationship with him right Yes. Yeah, so going to the to the car crash, um, it was what happened after the Grateful Dead trip because at that point he put an ultimatum on me that, you know, I had to come visit him again. Um, and he was with his family and at Martha's Vineyard for the summer. Um, so 
as I was sitting there after that phone call, trying to figure out, okay, you know, where am I going to scrape together the money that I don't have to get up to Martha's Vineyard? Um, a friend said, oh, well, you know, I'm not doing anything. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a ride. Let's, you know, let's just make this a road trip. Um, so, and, and um, I had a driver's license, but I didn't drive. Um, so anyway, the, the that driver um, turned out to be not a great driver. Um, and we ran off the road in, in Rhode Island. Um, I had three or four broken ribs, bilateral concussion. Um, lacerated liver and a punctured lung. Um, wow. Two weeks in the ICU, and the people who were sitting there every time I opened my eyes, which I don't remember a whole lot of, were my parents and the boyfriend. So, um, uh-huh. you know, so so in in this time that I can't really remember a whole lot of, uh, I'm sure it was a terrifying experience to, you know, come come out of unconsciousness and. Um, as I've told each time, you know, didn't remember what had happened or where I was or why there was a tube down my throat. Um, so, you know, I would be looking into the eyes of, of the people who were abandoning or trying to control me or putting ultimatums on me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when I got out of the hospital, um, I ended up being taken home by my parents who, again, started with the ultimatums. You know, they would help pay. If I chose, uh, if I took on a, a business major that was to their liking and um, they would house me elsewhere because they didn't want me with the roommates that I was with. Then the boyfriend, on the other hand, was saying, you know, you can come live with me. I'll continue to get the allowance from my father. Um, you know, you can apply to Cornell. Um, so those were the two decisions that I had to choose from because, you know, it was really no safety in, in going back to Philadelphia penniless and um, and thinking that anything else was going to work out um, that, that wasn't on somebody else's terms. So um, I went up to Issa, um, took a semester off, uh, volunteering and working with um, agencies in, in that uh, area um, and got accepted to the bachelor's of social work program at Cornell um, beginning the following semester, um, which I absolutely love. I just want to interject, um, Annie. During this time, I mean, you you painted the picture of it uh, being just your parents and the boyfriend. Were there any girlfriends? Were there any guidance counselors? I mean, you're a very, uh, even at 10 by that time, you were an accomplished student because they don't let anyone proceed with doing graduate work on a while they're still in grad uh, undergraduate because you know you're basically accepting a a 19 year old into a graduate program so did you because of the background you'd already told me it was hard to make friends but did you have other people that you ran stuff through or you just felt isolated between your parents and your boyfriend? Um, pretty isolated. Uh, when I talked mm-hmm. to friends about things that were going on, well, number one, I didn't recognize it as dysfunctional. So um, yes, didn't necessarily talk about it in those terms because it was just normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when somebody else saw a warning sign and you know tried to bring that up in conversation, I pretty much just dismissed it. Um, 
because I didn't feel like I was like I had any safety anywhere else. I felt like with the boyfriend that I was somehow protected from my parents. Um, so instead of moving from a secure relationship to a secure relationship, I moved from an insecure relationship to another insecure relationship. Um, if you think about attachment theory, um, but, but that's where I was comfortable somehow. And, um, and with money being an issue, uh, you know, knowing that if I, you know, met his, his requests that I would kind of be in a safe place, relatively speaking, um, that was just what I chose to do. I mean, friends, you know, friends were friends, but they weren't going to support me or, or house me or, you know, or necessarily be there long-term. Um, no, I totally understand what you're saying. And, and most of, uh, when I've talked with women and just knowing what I know, finances and um, these abusive relationships go hand in hand, whether it's uh, the abusive relationship with the parents or a spouse um, without being having your own independent financial freedom, um, that changes a lot. And it, it affects all of your decisions because most of our decisions do revolve around uh money to some degree because it you know money dictates where you live where you eat what you drive what you wear etc so um it's certainly you know not meant to be a judgment it's just meant to try and um flesh out um so that the listeners can better understand where you were at when you were making those choices. So you get up to Cornell, your body has healed, um, and uh, and now you're living with the high school sweetheart. And what what was that like? So I guess it was more of a honeymoon period. He did he did try to put some limitations on me. Um, there was one instance I was volunteering with a with a program. Um, where we were paired as volunteers with someone who had um, had spent some time in uh, a mental hospital and was now reintegrating into the community. So um, he didn't like it that I got paired with with a male. Um, so that that was one little blow up. But aside from that, you know, once I understood that guideline, oh, and that I wasn't allowed to wear tie dyes because that reminded him of the Grateful Dead. Um, so little bizarre things, but, but also, you know, controlling, like, you know, I should have recognized that, that, you know, someone should not be deciding what kind of clothes I can wear, um, you know, at 19 years old. Um, uh, but aside from those things, you know, once I kind of like came to terms with those parameters oh, and cut off contact with the Philadelphia friends, um, it was, it was somewhat of a honeymoon period because, um, you know, we were both just, just so I get... know how does how does um how do you, how does someone even say that like you know did, you shouldn't call the people from Philly anymore I don't like it when you speak to Cindy like how does that work its way into normal conversation yeah it doesn't sound normal does it but but it was um you know, that had become my normal that he just said, you know, these people are bad influences on you. I don't like them. I don't want you to have any contact with them. This, our relationship depends on you not speaking to them. And that's the way it is. So just cut off contact. Um, I also cut off contact with my parents at that time 
Um, that was boyfriend's advice as well. Not that that was necessarily a bad choice because every time I spoke to my mother, usually my mother, um, you know, she had nothing but derogatory things to say and, uh, you know, that I should be doing something else. So, um, so cutting off contact with my parents wasn't, wasn't a bad thing, but again, it was another social isolation technique. Um, I did have contact with my grandmother, um, but she was just, you know, an unthreatening, um, sweet old lady. So there were no issues there. Um, but yeah, so, you know, it, it, that was just the, the, the dysfunctional normal of, um, you know, he got to decide, um, because he was the one in charge. And so, you know, whatever arguments I presented in return, it didn't matter because ultimately it came down to, uh, being in a quote unquote safe place, um, living there with him and having that relationship. Um, but, uh, you know, for the, for the next, uh, couple of years, you know, we were both just so engaged in, in classes. Um, I didn't bother really looking for any social relationships. My, my social relationships were, were centered around extracurricular activities. Um, so those had a, those had a focus, um, uh, the, Public Service Center at Cornell was was just getting started at that time, uh, um, working on on project there, um, and so I had I had friendship, but um, the friendships were focused on activities, um, and there was no. So these were not people that you would call after after you saw them to let's say let's go out, let's hang out this weekend, let's get lunch. Did he have a wide array of friends? Was he going out and socializing? Well, yeah, there was that that rift as well. As um, when I was at UPenn, he told me I was not allowed to rush a sorority, but it was okay for him to join a fraternity. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So yeah, so he had he had um, sports related friends. He had fraternity related friends. Um, he had Dungeons and Dragons friends. Um, so yes, he did, he did activities. Um, and I just like kind of came to terms with that as a, as a normal thing and, and was fine with focusing on my studies and extracurriculars. Um, and Mm-hmm. Yeah, tell us about getting married. And I guess also him being as comfortable as he is with manipulation and, uh, ultimatums and making demands. Where do you think that came from? I think that came from his own family. Um, his father um, seemed like you know he was well to to him. His father was was all powerful and all intelligent. Um, he had been to to Yale and um, uh, and ran his own business uh, and. Um, Mother was a was a petite woman uh, from a poor family and uh, had been a model, and so it was another kind of rescue situation that I think he, my boyfriend, that uh, became my first husband, was kind of trying to to repeat in our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I I would see that his his father kept his mother on a on a financial string, so he controlled. You know, he gave her credit cards and credit card limits on, and this is what she could spend 
um, she was an, an artist truly and um, really just wanted to do her art and was allowed to express this in, in redecorating the family's homes. Um, but one instance that I remember is, is sitting around a, a dinner table um, with the whole family, the, um, his brothers and, and their wives or girlfriends at the time. And, um, and father, you know, um, interrogating and making fun of mother at the same time for, you know, well, what did she need this money for and how was she going to spend it? And um, just kind of trying to make it a joke of everything that was important to her. Um, so this is, you know, not like typical abuse you think of, you know, in a household of someone, you know, just getting, getting, getting beaten, but, but she was getting beaten up there at the dinner table and, 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 you know, getting poked fun at and, uh, being the, the laugh of the party, um, which it, it rang a bell for me. Um, but, you know, again, I didn't, I wasn't in a place where I could admit to myself that this was actually an abusive relationship that I was seeing and that I was seeing in my own relationship um, with him. Um, definitely. I mean, so, we all grow and we all change. And so that's definitely understood. That's, that's why I think it's so important to share your story of, of childhood, of teenage, of young adult um, and, and your growth because that it's just so important because it's something that you need to pass on to others because it is hard when you're in the situation to label it with something with an ugly name because who wants to admit they're being manipulated or who wants to admit that they're be that they're in an abusive relationship it, it just doesn't sound right so you know we do it, it becomes as educated as we are, as as entrenched as you were within the field of social work. It still can be hard to see it when it, it's you. Yes, I could always make an excuse that it was something else. Um, you know that that he was misunderstood, or um, it wasn't what it appeared to be. Um, the, the financial abuse began uh, so. By the time I was 20, I had gotten a sizable settlement from the from the car crash, um, and soon after came the marriage. So, um, so a, a lot of that money started getting spent, and it seemed that seemed to me that I had to spend um, just to fit in with his family. Um, so uh, I spent some, he spent some. He found reasons to justify, you know, why we should take expensive vacations. And I played along because in the back of my head was always the phone conversation with my parents saying, oh, money is more important than happiness. And me saying, well, I am never going to believe that. And happiness is always going to be more important than money. And so, um, you know, it was easy for me to justify and say, okay, this will make us happy. This will make him happy if we, we spend this money and take this vacation. Um, so we'll spend this money. Um, and I think that was really, I don't know if it was conscious or conscious or learned behavior that that seemed like it was kind of part of his plan. Um, so my money all but disappeared when, when the situation uh, turned really bad. Um, we moved back to Connecticut uh, sometime shortly after the marriage. Um, 
be near his family and he could easily have a job at, at daddy's company. Um, and he justified, he, you know, he would always have a job with daddy's company. So it was fine to spend uh, my insurance money on a, on a big house that was really beyond our means and continued vacations because he was always going to have a job there. And, and it was, you know, it was always going to be fine. Um, around that time, I also started going to a gym um, and really enjoying that. Um, and I had a personal trainer and who was very popular and, and made some other friends and, and wanted to hang around with those people. Um, and he really didn't like that. So, you know, really, um, since, you know, my college relationships were, as I described, um, not people that I got together socially with, but, but people that we worked, we worked on projects together. Um, now I had people that I wanted to get together socially with in the gym and outside of the gym. Um, so again, he put his foot down and, you know, no, you can't go to the movies with them. You can't do this and you can't do that. And, and there was, you know, and he had a, a higher level of leverage because, you know, my money was pretty, pretty well spent. Um, but at that point, so, Oh, um, now I get it. Why you said that you feel like on some level it was planned because you had already put the lump sum money into a joint account. Um, right. Because you weren't thinking I'm going to stash some aside for myself. It, it was never money wasn't an issue to you in, in that way to kind of always kind of wanting to save it or hoard it. And so you hadn't put any aside, you put it into the communal pot and in hindsight, your, your money kind of got spent quicker or was the first money spent instead of our money from the beginning. And, um, and, and I let him make most of the decisions. Um, you know, he came from a, he came from a wealthy family and I knew nothing about managing money. So I figured, you know, he, he knew what was right. Um, he was getting advice from his father. Um, uh, so like, for example, I came out of undergrad with no student loan debt. I had fellowships and scholarship. Um, when I went on to the master's of social work, um, and I could have paid for the entire education out of the insurance settlement. Um, but the advice came to me from him who got the advice from his father that just take student loans because the interest rate is, is low. You can pay it off later. Um, and meanwhile, your, your, uh, the insurance money can be in the um, investment account and it can be earning more. Um, so that was the beginning of my student loan debt. <laughs> the bottomless mm -hmm. student loan debt um, was, following, was yeah. following that advice. Thank you, Annie, so much for sharing your story. It's been so involved and so many layers like all of our lives are. And I want to continue this discussion so that we can learn more about what your next stages and phases and life, where it took you um, and where you are right now. So we will do a second episode discussing um, more with Annie. Join us for part two. Thank you, Makunda. Thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Uninhibited. You can find more episodes to download at iTunes, Spotify, 
and Google Play. You can also continue the conversation at uninhibited.community on Facebook, where you can like us and share. And you can continue chatting on Instagram at uninhibited.podcast. Special shout out to Trap Quilo for the beats.